I would like to extend my greetings um, to you all and to anyone who may be tuning in uh, on the stream, either live or at a different time. My name is Andrew Ojeda. I have the privilege of serving as the intern on staff this year, and I want to extend um, a welcome to all of you on behalf of the leadership team. Particularly to those who may be visiting since beginning my time in Princeton a little over a year now, about a year and a half. Uh, this has been my home, and I hope you feel as welcomed here as I do. Today we begin our series in Advent. The, the season of Advent began last week officially, as, as Ian said, um, but we are starting our Advent ser services today, and I have the privilege of leading us off. Pastor Ian had asked me if I wanted to give an Advent sermon, and he provided me with other options uh, for sermons as well, but I quickly said yes to Advent, knowing very well how special this season is. Um, for us, this season is a season of preparation and expectation for our coming Savior. I was not made aware of the seriousness of this season until I was in a class in college, and, uh, and a professor was telling us of how he had begun Christmas decorations uh, well before Thanksgiving. And uh, being an individual of reason and intellect, I, I raised my hand in objection, and I said, actually, um, Thanksgiving should have its own holiday, really. And I said, uh, perhaps we should uh, give that its proper space and then talk about Christmas decorations later. He then looked at me in a quiet stillness, and, and he said, Andrew, in a world as tough as ours, let us not delay in the expectant joy of our Savior. Yeah, how do you come back from that? <laughs> and, and he said this pretty lightheartedly. Really, uh, and, and yet I could not help but be moved by his words. He was right. Advent is this beautiful season of joyful anticipation for the coming of our King. And so I would like to share some stories common in our Advent season that the Lord has put on my heart for us all. And before I do that, please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this day and the new grace and mercies that come with it. Give you thanks for this space and opportunity to gather together to worship you as I share a message from your word. I pray the prayer of the Psalms. May the words of my heart and the, med the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So today I want to share from the Gospel of Luke the perspective of Mary. Um, before we get into that portion, though, I do want to take the time to set the story for us. If you know me, you might know that I love a good story, especially a story steeped in history. So to set the scene, let us look at the context of our characters, and the context comes in around the year 160 BCE, which is before the birth of Christ, during the Maccabean Revolt. For those of you who are familiar with the story, the Maccabean Revolt was a Jewish revolt against the occupation of the Greeks in Jerusalem under the reign of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Keep in mind the title Epiphanies here translates to God manifested. So there is essentially a new God imposing themselves on the Israelites. And this God manifest made his presence known. Under Antiochus' rule, the Israelites found themselves oppressed and on the verge of cultural and religious extinction. Their sacred temple, their sacred areas of prayer and sacrifice would soon be overtaken by the outside force and converted to the religious areas of Greek gods. This was, of course, devastating for the Jewish people and particularly upsetting for a family known 
as the Maccabees, who sought to rid themselves of this outside presence by force. The leader of this movement was the son of the founder, Mattathias, who was named Judas Maccabeus. And the, and the word Maccabeus here actually comes from the word meaning hammer. And let's be completely honest here, folks. If you were ever going to need to follow someone into battle, 10 times out of 10, you're going to pick the hammer, right? No one's going to want to follow Pipsqueak McGee into a revolutionary war. That's just not going to work out well for you. And for those of you who are interested in more of the story, you can read First and Second Maccabees, which is found in the Catholic canon. Um, for those of us who like stories like Game of Thrones and Braveheart, there's enough battle scenes and war speeches to sustain us. I swear, every single battle they get into, they're outnumbered. And yet they win, and it's amazing. And it's like, yeah, yeah this, this, someone should make a movie about this. Um, Disney made one about basketball, which is pretty funny, uh, about this story. And so this is, also, and this is also a story where we witness the miracle of Hanukkah. So the revolt is successful, and the foreign invaders have been vanquished and sent home, and the temple and the holy sites have been rededicated to God, and life is grand. That is until the freed states of Israel have a disagreement over power, and in an attempt to remedy this quarrel, they reach out to the advice of the local great superpower of the time, the Roman Empire. They literally ask Rome, amongst us, who do you think should reign? Who do you think should rule? Um, and Rome looks at the problem and says, yes, we know who should rule your lands. We should. <laughs> and we think that our current leaders are incompetent. And just like that, Israel is back and under the rule of an outside power with their own oppression and under the rule of a Caesar, another person claiming to be God. A supreme being in charge of their every way of life. And unfortunately, friends, our news articles today illustrate similar realities around our world. Places in our world today that oppress and marginalize their citizens through unjust laws and moral forces. Here's where we begin. This is the context in which an entire people group cry out for their God incarnate to come. And this is the scene in which he does. This is when our Savior comes. And so with that, I want to invite Jamie. Jamie, if you would come and, and read our scripture for the day. Um, it is it is part of the tradition to to stand when portions of the uh, to stand when portions of the gospel are are read. So if you're willing and able um, to participate in that tradition and just and just stand with us as as we read from Luke. Okay, today's scripture reading is from Luke one forty six through fifty five. Hear the word of the Lord. And Mary said, "My soul magnifies the Lord." And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie.
An interesting point to mention in this passage is the fact that this passage is one that is an echo of an earlier passage in the book of 1 Samuel with Hannah's song. Um, when Hannah, a barren woman, is heard by God, and God grants her a gift in the form of a child named Samuel. Mary's Magnificat is widely understood as an echo of Hannah's song, and some have even said that it follows a type of Hannah's song. And looking at the parallels, it's not really hard to see why, especially in their context. The context for Hannah is Israel is lost in leadership and on the verge to begin to cry out for a king. And God answers their cry with Samuel, who will be the one who anoints Israel's king. In the same manner, a Roman-occupied Israel is longing for a savior, for a redeemer from their present reality of oppression. And God answers with the savior of the world in Jesus. What is interesting is that in the midst of the chaos, God speaks through these women and works in these women whom the rest of the world would otherwise forget. Yes, these women are the ones that realize the hope and the salvation of God and convey this in their speech. Um, you know, perhaps scripture is encouraging us to listen more to the voices of the women in our congregations. For they seem to be the ones announcing God's salvific moment in the Bible. You have Hannah, Mary, Mary in the garden who, who witnesses uh, Jesus' resurrection. In the words of my professor, hey, I don't write them, I just read them. In both cases of Hannah and Mary, but especially in Mary, there is a culture and a people group that is oppressed and in need of salvation. In the deliverance of God, and in all of God's goodness, God answers their cry in the life of a young woman who is pregnant without a husband. And she is in a context where this would normally lead to her exile from the community, if not death. The proclamation of Jesus coming is in the voice of an individual with little to no agency. A woman who is now outside of what is deemed the righteous way of living, who has no ability for her own redemption, this is the beginnings of our Savior. And as I read along and acknowledge the multitudes of people that would be crying for their Savior, I find myself confused that they are absent at Jesus' birth. Surely there should have been an entire people group awaiting his arrival, right? And yet I understand. I understand because I too am the one who looks for the hammer when I am in need of a savior. And rest assured, if there is no hammer, then surely I will try and be the hammer. In the midst of my oppression and hardship, I too am naturally inclined to be waiting a redemption that will vanquish my enemies and will restore me in might and power. This desire then becomes my ethical judgment, my selfish desire to say that I believe and I know what is best for myself. I will move in anger and in selfishness. I will disregard my neighbor. I will shut out and I will shut in. And I will alienate everyone else around me, all in pursuit of the desire to be redeemed by the means that I have deemed right. I become so engulfed by this desire that I then miss the beauty of this Savior. Indeed, the stars could align in the night sky, pointing me towards a babe in a manger. Wise men could be leading the way to my answer. And if I am honest with myself, when I, am the mi- when I am in the midst of pain and suffering, I will ignore this babe and seek deliverance elsewhere. If I could channel the classic scene of Linus recounting the story to Charlie Brown, I would say, now they're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, 
which will, be for all, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward all men. And I think honestly to myself, in this biblical story, who would I be? And truthfully, I wouldn't be a shepherd, let alone one of the angels. No, most of the time, I would be someone looking at the scene from the side and getting excited about the news of the coming of the Son of God. And then the moment when the angel mentions the manger, I check out. And I walk away. Why? Because how could my Savior have come born in a manger. Surely my problems are greater than someone born in a manger can solve. And I would have missed the beauty of this Savior arriving. Indeed, the beauty is in how this Savior meets us in this world. The full revelation of God, friends, is revealed in this child. And unlike the other kingly births, This child is not paraded in the streets, adorned with praises and gold and waited on by hand and foot from the moment he is brought into this world. Instead, this child is rejected immediately. This child is born to immigrants in an occupied land. And in Matthew 2, we see that this child then becomes an immigrant fleeing for safety in Egypt. Does this make sense? Is this a savior we look for? How could it be? To bring this point into our current context would to say that Jesus, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, could be found in the children in detention cages all along our southern border. And yet this is the one Mary sings is the hope for us and our deliverance from affliction. Mary says that this child is the strength of God. This child will scatter the proud, bring down the powerful from the thrones, and will lift up the broken, and fill the hungry? Where is the majesty and strength of God in this Messiah born in a manger? Friends, this humble start for Jesus is the majesty and strength of God. This may be foolishness to the world, but this is the love and glory of a God that says, if I shall be Emmanuel, God with you, then I will be God with you in the midst of your pain and suffering from the first day of my breath to the final words on a cross when I say it is finished. I will know you, and I will know your pain and rejection and hurts, and I will know it personally. I will know what it is like to be in danger. I will know what it is like to be rejected. I will know what it is like to be an immigrant in a foreign land. I will know the pain of losing a loved one. I will know what it is like to be abandoned and betrayed by friends. I will know physical pain, and I will know your heartache like a spear piercing my side. I will know the burdens of a life like a cross too heavy for me to carry up a hill. And I will know the sting of the sin in this world like nails keeping me on a cross. And I will know what it is like to have anxiety and depression torture our brain and pierce our minds like a crown of thorns. All because I, the Lord of all, desire to know you. And not just to know you, but to know what it is like to live life on this earth. God desires to know us, to be God with us, with us in every way. This is how Mary can confidently say that her child will lead to the deliverance of her people. 
because she sees that God has desired to start humbly and walk among God's people in order to save them. The God that has promised to uplift the lowly and fill the hungry has started first by becoming low and hungry. Indeed, God could have saved us from above with a blink of an eye. But this is not who God desires to be, and nor, is it, nor is it who we should want God to be. Do we really want a God to be a claw-like machine, picking us up from our pain and placing us elsewhere? Perhaps in some cases that is what we desperately want. I'm not naive enough to say that in the middle of pain and heartache, I, don't, I, don't, I just want to be transported elsewhere. I do. But then we would never know our God, and God would not know us in this personal and relational way. Friends, this is the, this is the main flaw with Superman. Right? Sorry for all you Superman fans out there, but Superman is an alien, not a human. Superman flies into a burning building and saves someone, but Superman doesn't know what it's like to feel the heat of the flames. Superman can save us from falling, but does not know what it's like to fall and to feel the anxiety of a deep fall where we don't know when we will land, but we know a soft landing is not waiting for us. Superman has to wear glasses and work a nine-to-five in order to try and blend in and embody humanity's weakness. And as someone who wears glasses, I take offense to that. The fact that Clark Kent... <laughs> the fact that Clark Kent has to wear glasses and somehow he thinks that no one will think... Surely that no one will think this glasses-wearing individual is not Superman. <laughs> Should have worn my cape today. No, friends, we don't desire this form of a savior. Not really. And this is not the relationship our God desires for us. God desires to know us in each and every aspect of our lives, to resonate with our affliction just as much as our happiness on this earth. This is the beauty behind Mary's words. The Son of God has come. God in flesh has come. Jesus has come. Deliverance has come. And not from the remote location, not from the highest palaces, but has come to be God among the lowly and to walk with us in each step of the journey. Not only is Jesus the one who meets us in this chaotic life, knowing personally the pains and oppressions of life, but this is Jesus, this is our God, who brings deliverance and salvation. Deliverance from the pains of this world and salvation to bring us into an eternal resting place with him in peace and in love. Jesus is God, and God has become God with us on Christmas to know what it means to live this life and then to bring us into a new life of eternal love. And this Jesus is capable. This child in the manger is able and has completed this process, and this child from humble beginnings went through life from the manger to adulthood. Each and every experience was met in the understanding that this life on earth was done because he loves us and desires to be God with us. And this love was strong enough that he loved us to the point of a cross. And this love was given a crescendo with his, resur with his, with his resurrection where he says, Behold, my beloved, this is the intended future I have for you, an eternal life where pain and tears have given way to my perfect peace and my perfect love. I'd like to invite the band back up as we... As we we get ready for to worship again, but um, and to step into communion. But I want to say clearly and confidently, this child in the manger has done all of this for us. And this child is coming again in the splendor and beauty of heaven, that we may begin our eternal life with him.
This is who we call upon when we call for our long-expected Jesus because only this child is able to do all of this. This child Jesus who is God with us, with us physically. And as we begin to move to the table and partake in these elements, these physical elements that are the body and the blood of Jesus, may we remember this truth. That God came in flesh and blood, not to simply share our anatomy, but to share our lives. The beauty and the pain, all the same. That when God says, behold my body broken for you, and my blood shed for you there, there was not a shred of misspoken words. That Jesus came to share in our existence and has made that clear in his life, death, and resurrection, that we may know that our God knows our lives personally. And that Mary was right to speak of her child. Her child born in a manger has come and made a way for us and will come again that we might be with him forever once again united with God. This is also who we call when we call for our long-expected Savior. Amen? This child in the manger. This child in the manger who's coming again. So friends, as we move towards communion, I would like to invite us. May these elements remind us of God's deep love for us in this way as we partake of this meal. That the God who has become flesh and blood now says, be one with me. Take of my flesh, take of my blood, my body and my blood broken and shed for you. And this is true. And this has been true since Mary saw her child born and proclaimed it. Thank you, friends. I, uh, I can't wait to worship you.